Net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you, as always, to this hour together. We call it the Bible Line. If you're new, this is an opportunity for you to call and ask questions about the Bible. Again, the local number is 525-1859. Our toll-free number for Internet listeners is 877 Uh, The call letters of this station, WAGP 980. When you call, you can dictate your question or go on the air live. Uh, People also email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net. Good morning, Rick. It's always great to be here. It is indeed, Pastor. And we already have a call standing by. So let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Thank you. Good morning, Rick. Uh, Good morning, Dr. Brogy. I have a question uh, concerning uh, forgiveness and reconciliation with family members. Specifically, I want to know, how do you deal with family members who have committed a grievous sin against yourself and others in the family? Uh, These people claim to be true Bible-believing Christians, but they're acting contrary to the Bible. They um, do not see their behavior as sin, even though it has been pointed out to them, and therefore they won't stop it and they won't repent. And so my question is, how does forgiveness look and how does reconciliation look in this instance? And my follow-up question would be, if the day comes that they do repent, then what would the relationship look like then if you're wary of trusting them again? I see. Well, it's a difficult question and a difficult scenario in which you find yourself because obviously they're, they're blinded or more likely just denying what they know to be true, if they are indeed true believers, if they are genuine born-again believers, then it's impossible for them to be living in some kind of sin and not to have the conviction of God the Holy Spirit behind that sin. Now, it is true that unbelievers in the course of time, though they may be religious, so they have a form of godliness, so they've denied its power, which is what Paul says will typify the last of the last days, that there'll be religious people who claim to be Christian, but are really not born again. And of course, uh, we know there is coming a time in human history, it's called the apostasy. There's always been apostasy of falling away in the church, where people who've walked to the edge of Christianity, who look Christian, smell Christian, talk Christian, but they're really not, fall away. Uh, There have been scores of examples throughout the history of the church and even in our own day. But there's coming a time where there will be the apostasy, a wholesale, worldwide falling away from the Christian faith. And we know there will be a generation of people that will be prepared 
uh, to do that. They, again, have a form of godliness without its power. So when you mention uh, they don't even see their sin, that's really impossible if they're truly born again. Now, they may with their lips say they don't see their sin, but in their heart of hearts, they know it's wrong or evil unless possibly you have a, a false perception, which I don't think you have, but it's possible. And I'm assuming you've gotten some counsel or dialogue with some godly people where you've laid out the specifics such that you could not just say, well, I think you're doing what's wrong, but to say, thus saith the Lord. Here's a scriptural passage that says you're in violation of God's holy standard. And so if there's a clear verse of scripture where it says, this is what God says, and this is what you're doing, and the two do not match, and they cannot see that, then you should probably be praying for their conversion uh, because they don't really know the Lord Jesus as Savior. Now, people who are born again can see what God says, can see what their behavior is, um, and not want to do anything about it. And again, if they are truly children of God, uh, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. People can linger in, in sin and play with sin, and, and, but it will invite the discipline of God if they truly know the Lord Jesus as Savior. Uh, it's, it's impossible not to know God's discipline and to persist in continual habitual sin. It becomes an issue, though, what is my responsibility uh, as a believer in relation to them uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and again, this is not for just any old kind of sin. This is for sin that really brings discredit and harm uh, to the body of Christ. I mean, we all sin in many ways, James says, uh, but not every sin in the Bible, for instance, dictates separation or dictates church discipline. Um, but the Bible does say, uh, do, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. And of course, he's exhorting the Corinthians to do this because they were allowing sexual immorality in the church and they did nothing about it. And then he goes on, he gives some very practical pointed advice. He said, I wrote to you not to associate in my letter, not to associate with immoral people. I didn't at all mean the immoral people of the world. I'm not talking about lost people or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you'd, you'd have to leave the planet because they're everywhere. But I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother or sister, it's generic there, any Christian who says he's a born-again Christian, if he should be an immoral or covetous or an idolater or a viler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even eat with such a one. And that's a really difficult passage to apply when it comes to family members. When you have a family member who says, I'm born again, they know all the facts, but they live a lifestyle that denies it, then God says, well, the right thing to do at that point is to, to separate, not even to have a meal with them. Now, that's, again, very painful sometimes, but it's that painful decision that we sometimes make that brings a person to genuine repentance. So I would be a little cautious in telling you that without knowing the specifics, but if you want to call me off the air and share things and I can be of help to you, I'd be, I'd be happy to talk further with you. Does that help, caller? Very much, sir. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. And we do have another live caller. Let's go to them now. Good morning. Thanks for holding. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. How are you today? Good, thank you. Um, 
listen to you all the time and really enjoy it. Um, I have a question. I was speaking with my brother about some things, and we were talking about apostleship. And uh, I guess that the apostleship goes to the, I guess, to the 12. I guess it was those that actually had the saw the Lord or saw Jesus. Yes, that was certainly one of the requirements to be an apostle. Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, 9, when he addresses some Corinthian folks who had false teachers coming to the church and said, Paul's not a true apostle. One of the questions, or it's a rhetorical question Paul asked to show that he is. He says, look, have I not seen the risen Lord? And the answer was, indeed, he had. So one of the requirements to be an apostle is you had to have seen the risen Lord in his resurrected body. You had to have been personally selected by him. And if you had been chosen by him to be an apostle, and if you had seen him in his resurrected body, then third, there would be evidence of that, which is what 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says. Um, Paul there, uh, let, me, let me just turn there so I don't misquote the verse, but it's a, it's a powerful argument uh, for apostleship and by extension, understanding signs and wonders in our day. But Paul says the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs, wonders, and miracles. So Paul again argues in this letter, uh, here in his second letter to them, I'm a true apostle. One of the ways you knew I was a true apostle is I did the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle can do. By the way, if everyone can do the signs, wonders, and miracles that Paul argues, as some say they can today, then his argument is meaningless. The fact is, is they're not doing the kind of apostolic miracles that were unique to apostles or apostolic delegates. So let me start there and then further your question. Yeah, well, the, I would say when, the, when Paul was struck down on that road to Emmaus, he saw that, the pillar of fire, and he asked him, who was he, Lord? And being a Jew, he, you know, he, he, he met Lord. I think the word was Elohim. And he, yet he saw, he, and even that pillar of fire said, I'm Jesus. And that's where I was confused that if you have the pillar of fire or, you know, just so many scriptures in the New Testament speak of even Jesus said that I will be with you even in you. And then he speaks of the comforter that's coming, and then he says that my Father and I will come make our abode. And it was just, I was just trying to weave through it just, even in Thessalonians, where it says that our, you know, that it is the Lord, you know, our Lord that comes back on that horse, but he says it's the Father. And that's where I I just, I'm just trying to weave through all of the, whether even just, I guess the main question would be on the Godhead. I mean, if Paul saw a pillar of fire, and it was Jesus. That's it's just a uh, it's just a question. I wanted if you could clarify that. Well, I, I think you're getting a few of your passages mixed mixed together. So um, let me let me just they're on, of course, the Damascus Road, not the Emmaus Road. The Emmaus Road is in Luke 24 when he meets those two disciples in a post-resurrection appearance. He's on the road to Damascus. He's heading to Damascus. The Apostle Paul. Because he's going to persecute Christians there. He's, he's, he's under marching orders to, to do some damage to the church as he had already been doing. And it's on the way there that it's not a pillar of fire, but it's a blinding light, the Bible says, a bright light. Which is not surprising because 
and the revelation that Jesus gives to John the Apostle. And, it, of course, it's in that book where he comes back on a, a white horse, not in not in Thessal, Thessal, second letter to Thessalonians or first letter. Now, he the, his description of his coming is given in those letters, but not on a white horse. That's unique to the revelation. But he's blinded by a bright light, and Jesus speaks to him directly. And they have the conversation. And Paul's testimony, by the way, is recorded in in three places in the Acts of the Apostles. And um, when you put all the accounts together, uh, it's very, very helpful. And so he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Let me just back it up. It says, and it came about that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, And that's significant noontime because that's when the sun's the highest and the brightest in the sky. A very bright light, which tells you it's brighter than the sun. Go ahead and light a candle during the daylight and there's no effect. Uh, It doesn't dispel any darkness. If I go outside right now and light a candle, it's not going to do anything. But um, this is noontime when the sun's bright. And the light that comes from heaven is brighter than the sun. And Paul says, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, it doesn't say he fell off his horse. Now, he might very well have been on a horse, but people often mix that account with Martin Luther, who was literally on a horse, and he's in a torrential uh, thunderstorm, and he falls off his horse. For all I know, Paul's walking. The text doesn't tell me. But it does tell me he fell to the ground. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who art thou, Lord? Who are you, Lord? And the Greek word is kurios. And he could have been speaking in Greek. We don't know. We know that Paul spoke three languages. He spoke Aramaic, he spoke Hebrew, and he spoke Greek. That's clear from the record in the New Testament. And he said, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. And those who are with me beheld the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said, arise and go on, go on into Damascus, and there you'll be told of what has been appointed for you to do. So he has an encounter with the resurrected Lord that leads to his conversion. He's not given the gospel um, by uh, by man, it comes by divine revelation. Uh, the precise moment when Paul is converted is debatable, but it's certainly before he meets Ananias. He's blinded for three days. He has a lot of time to reflect, to think, and it's not until Ananias comes and lays hands on him that uh, the scales are lifted off his eyes and he can see And he tells this person whom he knows is a believer because Jesus alerts him to the fact that he's a chosen instrument, a chosen vessel of mine uh, to take the light of the gospel to the Gentiles that Paul is baptized. And he's not baptized as an unbeliever. So somewhere, some would say, well, at this moment he was converted. It doesn't appear necessarily that it happened at this moment. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it happens. It could have happened right at this moment, but it happens before his encounter with Ananias. And he recognizes that the one whom he was persecuting, Jesus the Nazarene, is the resurrected Lord, the sovereign Messiah, the promised one that the Old Testament prophets spoke of. A baby is going to be born to us, and the baby's name is going to be called Mighty God. That's what a Jew understood, that a baby was coming. And this would be no ordinary human. 
this baby would be God in man in one person. And of course, that's what the New Testament affirms. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And then it will say, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Um, So uh, I'm not totally clear on your question, but I can say this with dogmatism. Paul came to an understanding that Jesus was Lord, that he is Kyrios, the Lord, ho Kyrios, not just a master, but the master, the master of masters, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the savior of the world. He is converted and uh, he's one to Christ through that whole process. All right? Absolutely. All right, good. Thanks for your call. Let's go to the next question. All right. Our next question comes from the warm state of Texas. And this person writes, I have a technical disagreement with my Christian boss due to his unwillingness and or the unwillingness of his colleagues, uh, peer pressure, to consider new technologies. They are about to choose a path I think will cost the company far more money than necessary. I do not think he honestly believes my opinion to be true. I think that in his own mind, he has a clear conscience regarding the matter. My conscience is bothering me in regards to me wasting, one, company funds by using old technologies, and two, my own time, uh, salaried hours, etc. I am uh, in this situation because of a reorganization which subordinated my company and colleagues and our technologies to those of our parent company. On the one hand, I'm concerned about offending God by wasting company time on wasteful technologies. On the other hand, I'm concerned about offering, offending God rather by speaking up and as a result possibly harming the career of my Christian boss. The Bible tells me to be a good steward of my employer's money and time and to be a good slave or employee and that God hates an uneven balance or an unfair exchange of goods and services. The Bible also says not to do harm to other Christians. I suspect the welfare of the saints is more important to God than the finances of a godless corporation. I'm having trouble discerning between my own pride and what God wants. I've been at other companies where professing believers did harm to each other while jockeying for position in the company, and I know this is not pleasing to our Lord. I know I have a history of abnormally excessive vanity and pride and of God humbling me for it. I don't want to bring shame to to the Lord or discipline of God upon myself in the process of whatever he wants me to learn through this. Any counsel you could give on the matter, uh, which I'm sure many Christians have been confronted with in the workplace, would be greatly appreciated. Well, let me give first the general overall principles. I'm turning here to the book of uh, Colossians, and you can find the same uh, admonishment in the parallel text in Ephesians. He says, Masters, um, uh, grant, uh, well, well, let me just back it up first to verse 22. He says, Slaves in all things, obey those who are masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Um, And then he gives a parallel advice to masters as to how they should treat their, their slaves. And the parallel today, I think today, would be employers and employees. Now, let me just say this. Um, There's the overarching principle that's given in the Word of God when it comes to submission is that we must obey God rather than men. If there is an issue that is a moral issue, that is an issue of um, where an employer or someone in uh, authority over you is asking you to violate a moral dictate of the word of God, then you have a responsibility 
to not obey that kind of order. So if he's asking you to do something dishonest, to steal, etc. Now, what I'm hearing here is an issue of uh, maybe what you don't consider to be the best stewardship or the best investment of funds. Uh, I remember some time ago, someone came to me and he said, yeah, you know, I've got like $60,000 and this friend uh, wanted me to uh, invest in his uh, his new business that would be similar to tr- what basically what AAA did. And I said, why, why would you want to spend $60,000 and give money to an organization that, one, does not now exist, two, um, already has a number of parallel organizations like AAA or, you know, I, I'm not a member of AAA, but I think I pay like $3 extra every six months on my vehicle so that if it breaks down, my insurance company pays for a tow. Most insurance uh, policies have that, and you don't have uh, some of the perks that AAA gives. But it, these, I said, why would I want to spend $60,000 in some guy's company? And I advised him. Not, I just said it's not. It's, it wouldn't be good. Uh, he did it anyway. Lost the whole kit and caboodle. Um, so you know, you you may see some decision that your boss is making, and you might say, "Hey, you know, here's just a thought. Um, this is my perception of it. I know you're the boss, but just just felt like you know this might be information you'd want to have in your decision making process." And you share it. That's all your responsibility. That's where it stops. You just submit to him. Otherwise, you honor him. You serve him like you're serving Jesus Christ, not by way of eye service, but serving the Lord. Um, and that's where your responsibility stops. Rest in that. You know, sometimes, too, God wants a person or allows a person, I should say, uh, to fall flat on their face so that they will heed wise counsel. Sometimes a wife says, now, husband, you know, I don't think you should buy that new boat. I think um, this is what it could do to our family finances, and we may have some unexpected expenses. And and you say, okay, I appreciate that. You go and buy the boat, and then you fall flat on your face. And the next time your wife gives you counsel, who's your helpmate, you might think twice and so sometimes, again, if it's not a moral issue, you just respectfully share your counsel, but you submit. And many times it's through failure that God teaches people. And so you rest in that, that he's sovereign. And But it's not the kind of thing you leave your job over or get bent out of shape or can't sleep at night over. You just enjoy the Lord, do your best in serving him. Anyway, good question. Let's go to our next question. If you want to call us, the number locally is 525-1859. That's area code 843. Or you can use our toll-free number, 877-WAGP980. Or some email us directly here at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. And indeed, a listener just called in and would like you to please explain about Satan's falling in relation to creation. She wants to make sure she's totally accurate when she explains this to her children. Well, um, the fact that Satan was an unfallen angel, you know, we usually think of the word Lucifer as a real negative term. That's actually his uh, pre-fallen name, Lucifer. It appears in the King James, um, the New American Standard and other translations like it take the Hebrew word and instead of translating it as a name, they interpret the meaning of the name called the Shining One. 
Uh, and that's really what Lucifer was. He was a glorious, shining cherub of God Almighty. And his fall is described in two major passages in the Bible, in Isaiah 14 and in Ezekiel 28. You might want to listen to a message I did in Genesis 3 where I deal with the fall of Satan, and I walk through those two passages. And if you go to searchthescriptures.org, all of the Genesis messages are up, and you can listen to them audio, or you can listen to them visually there online. Uh, But I walk through the fall of Satan. Now, there is some debate amongst good godly people uh, as to exactly when this fall takes place. Now that it did take place because of the rebellion of Satan is indisputable because Jesus affirms it as well. Satan makes those five I will statements. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, and it describes his fall. There's debate whether that happened in eternity past before the creation of the world, or there's debate whether that happened after the creation of the world. Uh, because it's argued in Genesis, God saw all that he made. It was very good if there was evil in the universe. And, you know, um, how could Satan have fallen in eternity past? Well, it might be the very good that he's describing is simply limited to what he made in those seven days. Uh, It is clear from the book of Job, chapter 40, that angels were present at the creation of the world because the Bible says they sang for joy when God created the world. So there, by the way, is an example of angels singing. I heard a preacher not long ago on the radio and said angels don't sing. They do. Now, they may not have sung uh, like we sing at Christmas at the birth of Christ. They praise the Lord, whether that was verbal or in song, we don't know. Uh, But they can sing, and they do sing, and they did sing at the creation of the world. So they were certainly there as God laid the foundations of the world. So some have the creation of angels, uh, you know, maybe on day one and then the fall, you know, before the fall of man. It's not that critical. What is critical is that they were there when God created the world and that Satan at some point did fall. This kind of goes back to the statement I quoted from St. Augustine on Sunday Um, in Essentials unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, uh, charity or, or, or love. So this is one of those secondary issues. It's not a test of orthodoxy, whether you believe Satan fell in eternity past before God created the world, or whether you think he fell after God made the world and, you know, prior to the fall of man. He certainly was fallen by the time Adam is in the garden with Eve Uh, The exact time frame is debatable, how much time transpired from the creation of the world to the actual fall, because we're not told. Uh, So again, that would be pure speculation for someone with a sense of dogmatism to say, well, it happened two minutes after they were made, or it happened 20 years after they were made. I read an article once where the guy argued it happened 100 years after they were made. Look, if it was that clear, we'd all be in agreement upon it. So we don't know. But again, teach your children that Satan is a real force. He was once a beautiful, glorious, magnificent angel, had a place of prominence, much like Michael the archangel has a place of prominence. And uh, he rebelled against God, and he convinced one-third of the angels to fall with him. Uh, Satan hates you. He wants to destroy you. He's the thief who comes only to kill and to destroy and to steal wants to wreck your life, absolutely hates you, is a deceiver. Every time he speaks, he speaks 
deceit and lies. That's what comes from his mouth. Uh, he is the slanderer, which is what his name means. Uh, the voice of Satan is found only three times in all the Bible. You'll see his works from Genesis to Revelation, but you hear his voice just three times in all the Scripture. You hear it the first time in Genesis 3 when he slanders God before man. You hear it a second time in Job 1 when he slanders man before God, and then you hear it a third time in Luke 4, Matthew 4 when he slanders the God-man. He's evil. And we wage war not just against people, but principalities that he's leading, powers that are at work, that are under his authority. So that's where I would start. But what I would suggest you do is go back and listen to my sermon. It's an hour long on the fall of Satan, where I deal with him as the evil creature that he is there in those chapters of Genesis as he slithers onto the page of Scripture and you read of his fall. Let's go to the next question. I we, think have, we have a uh, live caller standing right. by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, good morning. Um, I'm trying to really focus now on studying the Bible, so I was wondering, Dr. Brogy, if you could give some advice on how to do, go about that and some recommended tools and anything like that. Are you in a good church right now? Yes, sir. All right. Well, that's that's an important starting place. Make sure you're in a church where the pastor is one born again. You say, is that not a given? No, there's scores of lost pastors all across America, thousands of them that will fill the pulpit, some who have denied the faith and willfully chosen the wrong way, others who are just lost. They're like blind guides leading the blind. So number one, make sure your pastor is born again. Because I say that because he's one of the instruments that God wants to use to help you to grow. Uh, how does a pastor show his love for the Lord? Not primarily by showing up at your, your bed when you're sick in the hospital. Uh, but the primary way that a pastor shows his love for Jesus Christ is to feed my sheep. That's what Jesus asked Peter three times. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs so forth. We are to feed the sheep of God, and we're to do that with the Word of God. That's why in Acts 6, the apostle said, look, we could serve tables. It's not that it's above us, but God has called us to devote ourselves to the teaching of the Word, the study of the Word, into prayer, and that's what a pastor does. He teaches the Word uh, to lost people as he evangelizes, and he feeds the sheep He teaches the word of God to those who've been born again so that they can grow. And the reason I say this is really important is because your pastor is a critical instrument in your spiritual growth. Uh, You know, a pastor, if he's doing his job, is going to spend hours in preparation, hours that you may not have because God has not called you to earn your living from the gospel. You have to go out and paint houses or operate on people or enter into a courtroom as an attorney. God's given you a different job description where a pastor is going to spend, you know, 15 to 25 hours a week. I I spend on average around 25 hours every week in preparation for a sermon. Uh, That's how long it takes me to prepare God's Word to do a third job because I want to feed God's people well and thoroughly. And uh, so that's a starting place. But you also need to become a self-feeder in the Word of God. And there are several suggestions that I make. Uh, one on Sunday, I said to people, look, if you, if you want you know, to be an instrument in God's hand where he can use you, number one, you have to know God's Word. Listen, if the only way a person can be saved is through the Word of God, there are two parents in physical birth, as in spiritual birth, There's uh, the Spirit of God and the Word of God. 
We're born again of the Spirit, John 3. You're born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding word, 1 Peter 1. So the Spirit of God uses the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, to convert people. So if faith comes from hearing and hearing about the word of God and no one has ever been saved apart from the word of God, and that was true even before the Bible was written, God just gave it in different means prior to its writing down in those days and times past. If no one has ever been saved apart from the word of God, then if we don't know the word of God, then we've really become less than usable in God's hand. And so we're commanded by the example of pastors to study and show ourselves approved of God. That's the verse I open up with every week for the Bible line. All of us are equally loved of God, but we're not all equally approved of God. And by the way, the Spirit of God also uses the Word of God to grow us. Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word that you may grow in respect to your salvation. So if the Word of God is the instrument the Spirit of God uses to convert, to bring about justification, and if the Word of God is the instrument that the Spirit of God uses to grow us, we call it sanctification, then again, we have really hamstrung God's usefulness of us if indeed we don't know the Bible. So your desire to become a self-feeder of the Word of God is critical. And I tell people a critical uh, place to start is what I cover in the discovery class. Uh, and that is now online. At least the first 10 less, 11 lessons are now online. Uh, there's, uh, there's basically 21 handouts. 11 of them have been redone. And the audio and the uh, video is now online where you can watch them. And I tell people, if you just mastered the material in the discovery class and that's all you knew, you would have, I think, a powerful impact for Christ. Um, So that would be a good thing to do. I think uh, having some inductive Bible study tools uh, to start would be very useful to you. Uh, There's a series that was done First in the 1970s, and it's still available. It's called Design for Discipleship. It's by the Navigators. And there are seven uh, books in the series, originally six. They added a seventh one. Uh, But it walks you through uh, a number of critical issues of spiritual growth. But what they're training you to do is to study the Bible for yourself. So that would be a good tool. There's a series called The Ten Basic Steps to Christian Maturity. Uh, It was done by Dr. Bill Bright in the 1950s, still available. Uh, Great series, a good, solid Bible study, gets you grounded in the basics. Uh, He also wrote a series called The Transferable Concepts. There's uh, 10 in that series. Excellent material, again, walking you through the basics. And most Christians today, I believe, don't have a handle on the basics, and that's why I'm underscoring that. Um, but again, these kinds of tools will get you to reflect and then, you know, you'll, you'll begin to broad, broaden out on your own. One thing I I start my quiet time every day with a chapter in Proverbs. And so, you know, I, I listened actually to, uh, uh, a thing called the Bible is, uh, it's ESV, which is a decent translation, though not my favorite, um, and, but they have a great audio thing. And so I listen to that on my way driving in, uh, I'll, I'll open God's word and I'm usually studying a book of the Bible and, uh, spend some time in it, asking questions. Occasionally I'll read a commentary. Uh, but when I've lingered in God's presence and I've had some time alone with him, and then I'll have some time in prayer 
for whatever is before me or whatever God has put on my heart in relationship to my family, my children, my grandchildren, the ministry has given me, and, and, and then I'll leave. Um, so you, you need a regular time of feeding on God's Word. And if you do it just on Sundays, well, you'll never be a strong Christian. You have to spend some time every day. And it's not by accident that God calls His Word milk, meat, honey, bread. It's likened to food. And if you ate physically just once a week, you'd be a sick dude. Well, you, you need to eat daily. And many Christians do not. They, they find time to do what's important. And it's obviously not a priority for many of them to spend time in God's presence, and it needs to be. Anyway, great question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 525-1859, toll free, 877-WAGP980, or email us at TBL. Rick, let me just say, too, with that prior question, one of the handouts um, that people get in the discovery class deals with how to study the Bible. And, and again, we, we walk through some of these basic things in a lot more detail than I can here in a two-minute answer. Go ahead. All right. Very good. Uh, this call was uh, dictated, or question, I should say. Uh, our next caller would like you to respond to how you sh- should respond, rather, to those who say that the books of Matthew and uh, the letter to the Hebrews were written in Hebrew, not in Greek. Well, um, that is a good question. Um, and I, I don't think it's the case. Uh, there, there is no real clear, strong uh, Greek, um, excuse me, Hebrew manuscript evidence to show that that was the case. But I will say that there was a translation of Matthew, uh, in fact, not just Matthew, but the entire New Testament that was done in Hebrew. Now, we often think of the Old Testament done in Greek. Of course, originally it was done in Hebrew and Aramaic, but most Jews having lost their ability after the time of judgment through the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and they're taken captive and brought into different places of the empire, uh, first the Babylonian Empire, then under Medio, first the Assyrian, then Babylonian, then under Medo-Persia, which becomes Greek and the Greek Empire and so forth. They eventually, they learn Greek. And so they lost their ability to speak Hebrew. And so they read the Old Testament, most Jews in Christ's day, not in Hebrew, but in Greek. And that's why the New Testament very often quotes not the Hebrew Bible, though it does in some places, but it very often quotes the Septuagint, the Greek translation. Well, equally true is there was a translation of the New Testament that was done in Hebrew. And some have argued, based on some ancient works that we have, that, well, Matthew was originally done in Hebrew. I don't think so. I think it was done in Greek, and that's what most scholarship argues, and I think there's tremendous evidence. Now, there's some very technical arguments I could give, but I won't bore you with it. Um, But I I do think the preponderance of the evidence shows that Matthew is done just like all the rest of the books originally in in Greek. But there were translations not just of Matthew, but of other, the, the entire New Testament that were eventually done in Hebrew as well. So, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Uh, our next listener would like to know, when Christ reigns on the earth for a thousand years and the believers are with him, do these believers live for the entire thousand years? If so, uh, do they have the chance to have children during that time? And do their children have to become believers as well during the millennium? Well, it depends which believers you're referring to, uh, because there are different believers who are involved in it. There's Old Testament saints that are there in the millennial reign of Christ, uh, that Daniel uh, chapter 12 places their resurrection 
uh, into their new bodies at the end of the time of Jacob's trouble, at the end of the seven years, is the church saints who I think have already been caught up and resurrected uh, before the tribulation period began. Um, And then there are tribulation saints, that is people who survive the great tribulation and become believers during that seven-year period who enter into the millennial reign in their natural bodies. But it appears their natural bodies are rejuvenated. And that's why Isaiah can say if a man lives only a hundred years during the millennial reign, he is considered a cursed individual. So it appears they live for a protracted period of times during the whole millennium. Um, unless they come under some severe aspect of God's discipline during that time. But by the way, what takes place here in Revelation, I think, argues, demands really, a pre-tribulational rapture. Because it tells us here in Revelation 20 and verse 7, and when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations, which were in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, that's Jerusalem, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then the next thing you see is uh, heaven and earth, the current heaven and earth fleeing, uh, the great white throne judgment just before the creation, Revelation 21.1 of a new heaven and a new earth. So if, as some have taught, the church goes through the tribulation, and if we are caught up in the air at the end of the tribulation, if that's when the catching up takes place is after the tribulation, and then we come back to rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years in resurrected bodies. Resurrected bodies, the Bible tells us is in passages like Philippians 3, 20 and 21, you cannot sin in a resurrected body. So And Jesus tells us when he uh, is confronted by the Sadducees who try to trip him up with this crazy scenario of a woman who dies and she gets married again and her second husband dies and she gets married seven times. Well, you know, okay, Lord, whose husband is she going to be? And Jesus said, well, in heaven, we're like the angels and that angels don't marry other angels and have angel babies, little cherubs. Now, it makes for good art. But it's not a biblical concept where you have baby baby angels, so to speak, coming out of other angels. I know in heaven there's neither marriage nor being people being given over to be married because we're like the angels. And so in our resurrected bodies, we, we don't marry, so to speak. And so if we're in resurrected bodies, we can't sin, we can't have children, then who on earth are being described here as the nations of the world who at the end of the thousand years rebel against God's Messiah. However, if the church is first caught up and Christ first comes for his saints and we meet the Lord in the air, and then at the second coming, he comes back with his saints to the earth because he literally comes to the earth 
to the very mount, from the very mountain he ascended into heaven from, the Mount of Olives, is the very mountain that he will descend back on. His feet will touch it, the Bible says, and it will be split in two. And then he will rule and reign for a thousand years. So if we're caught up prior to the tribulation, we come back with him at the end of the tribulation. And if during the tribulation people are saved, and they are, people who've never heard the gospel before in clarity and in power, and they enter into the millennium in their natural bodies and have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, you could have a lot of folks in a thousand-year period of time. That's how long your family lasted. Then, um, Then it makes sense for Satan to be able to tempt people because while he cannot tempt those first-generation Christians, because once we're saved, we're always saved, their children have to make decisions. I I have children, but I don't have grandchildren in a spiritual sense. Or, Or God has children. God doesn't have grandchildren. I'm a child of God, but just because I'm a child of God through my faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior doesn't automatically mean that my children are born again. Each one of them had to, and they did by the grace of God, receive Jesus as Lord. So God has children. He has no grandchildren. And during the millennium, the first generation of tribulation saints that enter in are secure, eternal saints of God. But their children and grandchildren or great-grandchildren or how many ever generations they go in a thousand years will have to make decisions for Christ. And some of them obviously will not. Now, the only way to get around this is to do what John Calvin did. And that is, and others like him, is they spiritualized the text. They said, well, Jesus is not going to literally reign for a thousand years. A thousand is just a number of fullness and completion. And well, listen, how did Jesus fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament? Literally, every single prophecy concerning his first coming was literally fulfilled. How will Jesus fulfill the prophecies of the second coming? Literally. Just as he was literally born in Bethlehem, his feet will literally touch the Mount of Olives. Just as he was literally pierced through for our iniquities, he will literally reign upon the earth for a thousand years. And so Calvin and some others like him, because they had a wrong view of the church in terms of uh, they thought the church had replaced national Israel, was confused on some of these issues, unfortunately. And uh, he knows better now, but nonetheless, um, it's a good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980. And Emmanuel from Beaverdale, Pennsylvania, would uh, like to ask a question regarding the qualifications for a pastor. First of all, does a pastor have to be married and have children to fulfill this office, or are the qualifications generic in nature? And secondly, is it possible to run a church without a pastor instead of instead of rather having just a group of elders? Well, let me deal with your first question. Does a pastor have to be married and have children? And the answer, I think, is no. Now, there are two central passages that deal with the qualifications for elders, Titus, uh, Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy 3. There are other supplementary passages that are critical, like Acts 20 and 1 Peter 5. But when he says, if any man aspires to the office of overseer or elder, 
Um, and the word is used interchangeably. By the way, the word elder, overseer, bishop, which is what the Old English translates overseer, is used interchangeably in the New Testament. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, da-da-da-da-da. Uh, his uh, children have to be under control with all dignity. I think Paul addresses an elder is being married because that's typically the case. God has called most people in this world not to be single, but to be married. Um, And so with that being said, you would expect Paul to give marital standards and family standards as it relates to children. Because he says, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? In other words, if a man cannot in a limited realm exercise good spiritual leadership, Don't broaden it. Don't give him more responsibility. If it doesn't work in his home, don't export it into the church is really the thought. And so the assumption is that most elders or pastors will be married, but not all. How do we know that? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when Paul deals with different marital issues in that passage of Scripture, he ends up revealing his own marital status. Let me just read it to you. Um... He he talks about how couples should stop depriving one another unless, of course, they've agreed for a period of time to devote themselves to prayer. And then they should come together again. He's talking about physical aspect of marriage, sexual love. Then he says, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself. How was Paul? He was single. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and one in another. So Paul was single. Uh, Paul had the right, he says in 1 Corinthians 9, to be married and to uh, have a believing wife and to be supported. But he, he was gifted of God to be single. This is not a spiritual gift. This is more of something that God does to a person uh, than what God does through a person. The spiritual gifts that are given at the moment of conversion, I think, are a little bit different. But Paul was uh, so created in his physical makeup that he could be single his whole life and not uh, potentially uh, be an object of the evil one uh, where he couldn't manage self-control. So uh, Paul was an elder. He was a pastor. You say, how do I know that? I know he was an apostle, but how do I know that he was an elder? Well, again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. In 1 Peter 5, therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder, and witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, Peter makes that statement. He says, I exhort the elders, and as your fellow elder to shepherd the flock of God among you. So Peter is an apostle, but he's also a pastor. Now, not all pastors are apostles, obviously, as we opened with a question that came through live to be an apostle. You had to have been chosen by Christ, seen him in his resurrected body. And if indeed he had called you and chosen you, there would have been signs, wonders, and miracles that would accompany that. There are no apostles today, but all the apostles were elders. Well, if Paul was an apostle, then he was also an elder. He was a pastor, and he was certainly qualified to be one. Not to mention the Lord Jesus is the chief elder. He's the chief shepherd that's described also here in 1 Peter 5, and he was single. So, no, it's not necessary. Now, your your second question, uh, read that for me, Rick. Uh, it came through on the screen. I don't see it. Okay, uh, let me go back to Oh, there. here it is. Oh, yeah. Uh, is it possible for a church to be led by... Um, uh, a group of elders versus a single pastor. 
Well, again, I think definition here is really important. When you think of the word elder, the word elder is not a separate office from the office of uh, pastor teacher. And again, in Titus chapter 1, where we also uh, find the qualifications, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And then he says in verse 7, for the overseer must be, or the bishop must be. So again, in the same breath, he uses the word elder and bishop. Does the same thing in Acts 20. And he uses the term elder, um, overseer or bishop, and pastor or shepherd. Again, all referring to the same office. So an elder is a pastor. Uh, You could call any of the elders in our church pastor so-and-so. Now, is there a chief elder other than Christ in the local assembly? And I would say yes. And I think that's what's in view in Revelation 2 and 3. There is a leader amongst equals. He's a leader, but he's amongst equals. And so Jesus addresses the what today we would call the senior pastor. Now, some use those passages to argue for a single elder form of government. Uh, I, I don't personally agree with that, but I do agree with the fact that there is a leader amongst equals, and I think that's what Revelation 2 and 3 highlights. So you, you need a leader. And usually in these churches, and the only group that I know that does what you're describing are the uh, Plymouth Brethren. Uh, but usually there's one who surfaces out of that who becomes kind of a point man in practice. Good All right, question. we've got a couple of minutes left. Right, one last ahead. caller. Thanks for holding. Right. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Uh, Pastor Brogy, I called earlier about the uh, the apostleship question. Yes. I, I just, uh, you had made mention that there was no more apostles. One thing that came to my mind is when they were in the upper room and cloven licks of fire came down. Now, I know it wasn't the same uh, as that, but they still saw those cloven licks of fire, and Peter said that this promises to you and your children and as many as are far off. Wouldn't that still, I mean, if they had signs and wonders, even like when uh, Ananias and went to Paul and, and surely a lot of those had signs and wonders, would that not qualify as the same thing or not? No, it wouldn't. Um, this is what I suggest you do. I think this might really help you. Uh, online, if you go to searchthescriptures.org, uh, the messages that I preach on Sunday morning that are aired uh, on on the mornings here, 830, 8.30 in the morning, 8.30 at night here at WAGP 88.7, uh, those are Sunday morning messages adapted for radio and, and broadcast at various stations on the East Coast and through the Internet. Um, if you listen to my series on Acts, and what I would suggest is that you listen to the message. I think I broke it, if I remember, beginning Acts one twelve and the whole upper room experience. And if you listen to Acts 1 and Acts 2 online, there's about three hours of messages there just on that section. I think a lot of these questions would be cleared up for you. I also would invite you to a meeting I hold twice a month called Meet the Pastor. The next one is coming up a week from Thursday. And if you have questions about the Bible, I do an overview and outline of the whole Bible in about 40 minutes. And so uh, you can go online at cbcofbuford.org and get details on that or call us here at the church. Anyway, we're out of time. As always, it's great to be here for the Bible line. There is a number of questions we didn't get to. But Lord willing, if God will give us the opportunity and we're not caught up in the air between now and next week, then uh, we'll try to address those questions. Lord bless you. Have a great day. 